guest today is that she's the, the VP of customer success with Sixth Sense. That's about it, so maybe we ought to go meet her and find out a little bit more. Janine Crispino, you're very welcome to the podcast. <laughs> thanks, Paul. Um, and that's some introduction. I love being a mystery. Um, but thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here today talking to you about not just customer success, but how sales plays a role. Um, probably makes sense for me to give you guys a little background just on me since I am such a mystery, apparently. Um, yes, please. Go, <laughs> so, right back, see, go back as far as you can. High school. Where was that? What were you like? Let's go way back. So I am a born and raised New Yorker. I am still here, um, New York my whole life, um, still working out of our New York office, obviously remote right now. Um, and when I started out in my career, I graduated college. Um, I was in marketing and I graduated college and I ended up in this B2C email marketing role. Um, and in full transparency, I was really a project manager. I was lowest woman on the totem pole, just doing day-to-day -day tasks, um, but in account management. So always had that kind of in my blood and kind of fell into it, to be honest with you, um, with a previous colleague that kind of hooked me up with a job when I got out of school, um, which was great. And it really paved the way for my career. So I stayed in B2C marketing for quite some time. Um, I worked at large companies like Epsilon, um, then switched over to Responses, stayed there for a bit. And Responses was one of my best jobs, but we were acquired by Oracle um, about three years in. So I got to experience pretty young going through an IPO, um, a purchase, an acquisition. Um, so that was kind of a roller coaster. And after the Oracle piece, to be honest, I was kind of over the big company thing for a little bit. I said, you know, I need to get back to smaller companies. I'm very big on just getting stuff done. And at any big company, it's a little harder, just a little bit red tape. So I transitioned and went to a startup. And it was crazy. I think there was like 15 people when I started. And to be honest, Paul, I was like, what am I doing? I just left Oracle to go to this small job. Is this stable? Am I gonna have a job next week? Like, what are we doing? Um, but it kind of paved my way in terms of just being more agile and going with the flow. And I just loved the aspect of being able to get things done. And if I had an idea, I didn't have to go to my boss and my boss's boss and get it approved. It was kind of like, just that run with it. You're talking about, right? at, at Oracle, I did that. But when I left Oracle, um, it was just more agile because we were so lean. We didn't have, I didn't have um, the choice to ask people questions. I just had to do it. It was kind of like, it was a, it was a true startup. Um, you know, weird elevator to get upstairs, like not knowing if it's an actual building kind of startup, um, which was cool because it really helped me out. And, um, but still it was like B2C, um, but where my career shifted there was being a startup, it was very sales focused. So again, I've always been customer success, um, whether you called it account management, client services, customer success, same thing. Um, but at the startup, my comp plan that they gave me was very heavy sales. So meaning very heavy based on cross sell, upsell, of course, retention, um, that's always customer success. And I feel like it put this drive in me to obviously want to sell because I was always an A player. I am a type A personality. I want to win. I want to be the best. And if you're going to give me a comp plan that's heavy sales, I'm going to go sell. So I did that um, when I was at my the previous startup, um, Persado. And um, it really put, like I said, this drive in me. And I was able to now talk commercials and why they need more and what they should purchase from us. And I'll talk about this a little bit after I go into my background, um, but I just feel like customer success is just such a unique selling, selling position 
because you have a relationship with these customers and the last thing you want to do is tarnish that relationship. The relationship is actually more important than the sale because it's going to be more long-term and if you tarnish that relationship, you're done. Um, I always say it's much harder for customers to leave you if they like you and if they don't like you, there's another software solution around the corner that they can go to. So that's where I basically learned to sell. Um, stayed there for a bit. Um, I had babies there. I had I have twin babies. If anybody wants to get to know me, they're now three though. So terrible threes or whatever they call it, three majors is a real thing. Um, and I ended up at six cents. Um, I ended up at six cents because so many of my previous coworkers from responses actually were working there. Um, and these were men and women that I really respected and they were all going to this company. And I was like, wait a second. I want to be part of that again. I want to be part of that company. Um, the software, the solution looked amazing. Um, Six Sense is an ABM, so account-based marketing solution um, for customers. We uncover demand that other companies might not see or know about because it's anonymous on the web or anonymous based on their own research. Um, but it made me pivot, Paul, because this was now heavy B2B, like no more B2C. I was used to working with fun B2C companies like J. Crew, JetBlue, Bed Bath & Beyond, like these are my companies. Mm. And now I'm going to like B2B small software companies and I'm like, again, I'm like, what am I doing? Is this cool? Um, so I ended up, I'm, I'm still at Sixth Sense, of course. Yeah. And again, startup. So startup world, but when I started, we were at about 80 people. I think I was employee 80 and we're at about 350 now. Um, and our growth has just been crazy. So I've been leading the customer success team there for some time now um, in my career. Let me see if I've got this straight. Yep. You, uh, when, when you left college, you got something happened. You got kicked in the head by a horse and you ended up in marketing. Right? Exactly, exactly. And then, but they promised you that if you did well in marketing, they'd give you a real job in sales. Well, yes. A proper, okay. Yes. And then you had a kind of a baptism of fire in BTC, but then you went into the... A league in B2B. Yes. Got it. Yes. Just want to get that progression right. I love then, it. But what I'm interested in, I'm really interested in, and I'd like to explore a little bit further with you, account-based marketing. Who is it for? What kind of company is it ideal for? And how do you have to set up your go-to-market teams, your sales teams, marketing teams? Only joking about the marketing comment earlier, folks. Okay. <laughs> Just a little, just a little. That's a, that's a really great question. Um, and it's, it's pretty wide. So we, we market or we sell to all different personas. So something that we say is it's called account-based marketing, right? So account-based marketing is now focusing on account-based planning. No, you said marketing. You, you, were, you, were, you were good. You were, you were good. Don't worry. Um, yeah, so we say account-based marketing in the industry, but it really is, we say ABX because it's account-based everything. So sales, marketing, um, and even customer success, I can explain to you guys how I use it as well. And um, in the market, it really is amongst all different types of industries which in full transparency makes it a little harder for me because I'm not now focused at Oracle where I was you know, selling to retailers or selling to travel industry. Um, we sell across all different industries, um, software companies, um, large companies, we have Motorola, we have Dell, we have very big accounts. Okay, that, that sixth sense that goes across the market. What yes. I'm really curious about is if I wanted to adopt an ABM approach to developing my business. Yep. 
I, I'm not going to go across all industries. Let's, let's say I, w I want to stay focused in the SaaS-based industry. Yeah. Um, what type of... I guess what I'm trying to... Th I, I really want to understand about ABM is what type of prospect would I need to have in order for it to make sense for me to deploy an ABM approach to growing and developing that? And then the part B of that which is what would that look like? Yep, makes complete sense. So got it. So we we sell to, and those that are going to use the account-based marketing platform, it is across personas, but I would say our main buyer right now is the marketing team. Um, so we sell and we work directly with um, teams of demand gen. Um, when I first started, Paul, there was ABM was a buzzword, and now there's actually companies that have ABM manager, like in their job title. So those are the folks we're working with on marketing. And those marketing folks are using ABM to deploy what we call different use cases. So um, a display strategy where they're focusing on the account versus the lead. Um, they focus on different field marketing efforts, a little different today with COVID, less field marketing, um, but that's where they um, apply those efforts. Now where Sixth Sense has completely expanded over the last couple of years is as I said earlier, it's not ABM, it's ABX. So as a prospect and as our sales folks are going out, we should not only be focusing on the marketing team. The sales team are actually the teams that are using our insights and the software to get into get in front of prospects faster, learn more about them based on what you know demand we're uncovering and go to market. So my team is actually comped now on how on our ability to multi-thread to different areas within the org. Because what was happening was we were selling to the marketing team, marketing team's using us, but we know as a company we need to expand and get into sales. And that's the only way we're gonna be successful. And also, selfishly, it's the only way I'm going to get in and be able to upsell, cross-sell, and expand. Mm -hmm. So we start with marketing, I would say, normally, even though that's not ideal anymore. And then we usually um, branch out to both marketing and sales teams. And the sales teams that we focus on, of course, it's you know AEs, like account executives, but I would say our bread and butter and where we really focus is on the BDRs and the SDRs. Because these are the folks that wanna uncover accounts that are in market and they don't know about it. And they're also the folks that have to tailor their messages, right? They're cold calling, they're sending emails. And instead of just having a random email like, hey, wondering if you're in market for so-and-so, we actually serve up the insights so that their messaging can be way more tailored, more personalized, and then, you know, hopefully gets them that meeting and that pipeline. Let me yep. see if I've understood this. Yeah. That most organizations will tend to either have a product-based focus structure and how they go to market. Some others will have a vertical. Mm -hmm. a, maybe say a particular industry, let's say insurance. Yeah. services. Now, if they're selling small size deals that need a lot of accounts, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of cold calling, a lot of term on conversations. However, if I'm trying to land a big one, complex deal, long sales cycle, uh, big ticket item, there's gonna be a far fewer of those. There might be 10, I might yeah. be 10 accounts. Yep. And if I've understood what you're saying is that ABM is about how do I, maybe not so much how do I segment those accounts because that could be just territory planning or account planning in terms of which ones do I want to hold on to, which ones do I want to attain, uh, which ones do I want to recapture or expand. 
So that's more of a, how do I focus on the account? But once I step inside the account, uh-huh. and look how they go to market, who their customers are, what are their issues and challenges, uh-huh. and I tear that down, and I'm looking to understand it really at that micro level rather than macro level. Is that what ABM is? It's just, it's another level of granularity in terms of focus and understanding and engagement. Yes, so that is definitely part of it. So where it's, where it's a little bigger than that is you actually touched on it. Um, there are companies, um, depending on the industry, where they do have lists of thousands of accounts that this, you know, the BDRs just have to call down from. Mm. And what Sixth Sense does is we actually classify accounts into what we call buying stages. So um, it's purchase, decision, awareness, and consideration. And basically what we do is we have the BDR team prioritize accounts based on what we're flagging is in market for, you know, purchase and decision is, you know, more likely to buy. So this way they're not calling thousands of accounts or emailing thousands. Um, Their response time and their output is much less for a much larger um, result. Um, And then what we've noticed is, and that's like the sales thing, right? So that's like the, or the BDRs. But what we noticed too is you still want to know about those accounts that are researching, but they're in it like awareness phase. They haven't um, expressed enough activity. And that's where marketing kind of kicks in, where they're now sending them maybe display messaging or LinkedIn ads or some sort of like over, you know, some sort of content. Now, what you're talking about with the insights and getting more granular, that's exactly it. So I'll give you an example of how I even use it. But I would tell you, Account-based marketing started because everybody in marketing or in sales is focused on the lead. They'd be working a lead, like, give me my list of leads. And what happens, especially in a lot of these companies, your lead leaves, your point of contact leaves, budget gets cut, someone changes positions, and now this account that you're working, or this lead, I should say, that you're working is cold. Like, it's it's done, it's dead because you were just working this one man or woman. So um, at the account-based, what we've noticed is there's usually at least six or seven people involved in a buying decision. So, you know, it's no longer the VP of marketing said, yes, so, you know, we're buying the software. There's usually a lot more input that goes in these days, especially since there's so much content available for everybody to do their own research. So with account-based marketing, you are multi-threading. You're looking at the account level as a whole. In tandem, you're able to hit a bunch more people. So now you're maybe talking to the SVP of sales while um, you're also talking to the VP of marketing or the CFO, depending on who your market is. Um, I think it might make sense if I give you an example, actually, of how... Please do, and I'll tell you why I need the example is that as you're talking about intelligence and segmenting within it, 20 years ago, you you know, we were taught to go three wide, three deep in an account. Yep. So that requirement was there. That's nothing new. What I think I'm understanding is that you just allow people to do that a lot smarter. Yes. Yes, that's it. I love when you said that, the three wide, three deep. That's right on point. Um, And all of that software and insight and the solution right now is served up in our platform so that the salesperson, myself, so to give you an example for myself, Yes, I'm in customer success, but my um, quota, I have a quota, right? So I have to retain customers, so gross retention, and I have net retention numbers, which means we have to expand. Um, So I have my list of accounts, and what I can do is to go into our solution, and I can see, okay, we have a renewal with company X coming up. Let me go in and see what they're interested in, what they've been researching, what people on their team have been doing. 
Um, and then we run plays based on that. So if I notice you're in market for a chatbot solution, okay, well, guess what? We partner with a company that does that. So I know to serve up content and kind of talk to you about it without, without being too creepy, Paul. Like, as you know, it's AI, but we don't want to be too, too creepy. Um, and I know how to serve it up. More so, our space is now getting more crowded, which is a good thing, right? It means there's competition. So competition is a good thing. But I can go in and see if they are researching any of our competitors. And if they are, you know, that's okay. I mean, it's not okay. I'm usually like, oh, God, they're researching our competitors. But um, it helps me tailor and my CSMs tailor their outreach. So we're not going to say, hey, notice you're looking at so-and-so. Like, what's up with that? Instead, when we speak to them, we'll make sure we highlight our differentiators that we know we're better at without, with you know, staying classy, but wanting to make sure we address it head on. This way it mitigates any risk um, on that. So I can kind of see a little bit what they're looking at, you know, depending on the anonymous and the known data. Um, so we have both sets of data, I should tell you. Um, anonymous, meaning what they're looking at on the web, you know, any, if anything's cookied, of course, and um, like we, we research keywords, but we also take in and ingest their CRM data. So if they're using Salesforce and any marketing automation data. So, you know, um, Marketo, Eloqua, um, we integrate those together. So we have one clear output so we can confidently tell somebody, yeah, this account is in decision stage. Like you guys should be calling them and getting this meeting. Um, and it results in obviously increased pipeline, higher win rates, um, faster time to value. Um, it's pretty cool. And I love from a customer success standpoint that I can even use it um, just for my own accounts. No, makes sense, makes sense. So that, that's what, what I'm hearing from this is that the, the, the difference technology is making to what we, we do stay in there anyway, which is mm -hmm. to do it faster, maybe smarter. Yes, smarter, faster, yeah. Yeah, good, good stuff. So look, I'm, I'm, I'm also interested in, in you. I'd like to understand, because what I've read about you is, and, and, and testimonials people have put on LinkedIn tells me that you're a very detailed, organized individual, very structured. Yes, yes. Which doesn't always come with type A personality, so there's sometimes those two can be in conflict with one another. The type A wants to get things done. Yes. But the detailed, structured, organized person slows it down. <laughs> and I'm curious to know if you ever feel that tension as you tackle these day-to-day -day, uh, challenges. That's such a good question, and I love that you did your research on that. Um, yes, so I am definitely type A, and I, I appreciate folks that say I'm very detail-oriented and organized. Um, I would say I am detail-oriented. Organized is a stretch, so thank you to anybody that thinks that of me. Um, <laughs> I would totally show you all the random papers on my desk right now that make sense to me, but someone that sees it would say, oh my God, this woman's a mess. They're um, organized in your mind though. They, they are, they are. And I would say um, something that I've acknowledged about myself over the last 10, 15 years is I am an amazing multitasker. Like I can actually, I think, do like four or five things well at a time somehow. I don't know how I do it. Um, and I actually have been in jobs where I haven't been as busy. And I've noticed when I'm not as busy, I just get less stuff. I get less stuff done because I'm like, I can get to that later. I have nothing going on. I'll do that in an hour and it sits. Um, and now being a mom, working full time, um, having a team of 30 people um, that I work with, um, I have no choice but to multitask if I want to get stuff done. And that's kind of my thing, Paul, or I just want to 
make moves and people on my team, although we're at about 300 employees, um, like I said, I have 30 people in my org and they'll tell me, hey, Janine, like I have this great idea for how we should um, fix our customer health score or life cycle. And I'm like, cool, do it. Like, like, just bring it to me like when it's done, like just get it done. And if they fail, it's okay, like we'll pivot, but that's kind of how I multitask stuff. Um, and the other thing I've learned, and I just had my, I just had my performance review about a couple of weeks ago, and it always comes up, um, it's, it's actually a bad habit of mine. I need, um, as a type A woman and as a multitasker, I tend to not delegate enough, I would tell you. So I'm very big on enabling my team, but then I'll, I'll think I'm doing them a favor, Paul, because I'm like, oh, no, no, don't worry. I'll just do it for you. I could get it done real quick. And that's not enabling them, you know? So you got, I have to. Sure. Is that because you're uncomfortable asking or you want to be the hero? So that's a really good question. I would say I don't want to be the hero. I'm very big on like raising my team up, even if I felt like I did the work or if I closed the deal. I think that I believe I'm actually helping them because I know how busy they are. So um, we're in hyper growth right now. In 2020, obviously it was COVID and we didn't know what to expect as a company. So we luckily did not have layoffs, but in Q2, um, when COVID really hit, we did stop hiring. So we, we, we took a lull on hiring because we just didn't know like what was going to happen to our customers. Um, so then, thank God, business was fine and it actually picked up for us in Q3 and Q4. And we had one of our biggest years um, that we've had as a company. So the good news, that's, that's amazing news. The bad news, which is not really bad news, is we were just behind on hiring. So I had CSMs, um, customer success managers, that were just underwater because now instead of having 10 accounts, they have 16 or 17. And we wanted to provide the same level of service because it's so important. So I feel me jumping in. Um, I really did feel like I was helping, but long term, I'm not teaching them if I'm you know, going in and talking to the customer for them or if I'm um, negotiating the contract. So it's something that I promise I'm working on this year. I'll come back and tell you how it goes. Think that's an innately female thing. I do actually. I think females tend to be a little more empathetic um, in just like how they how they treat their teams. Um, I've worked with very um, empathetic male managers as well, but I think females tend to be a little more caring, more nurturing. And for me, you know, I had people on my team not just you know busy with work. And I know I know 2020 was was a weird year, but I had people you know, hey, I have to homeschool my kids. I don't know how I'm going to get this done. Or hey, like I my husband can't work, so. You know, I think there was a different level of empathy in 2020 that a lot of people had. Even if they were stone cold, people definitely, I think, felt it for folks that were going through it with COVID. Um, but I do think I, I do think females tend to be a bit empathetic and um, maybe more protective as well. Yes, yes, that's a great way to say that because you know we just had on Monday. I um, had a team meeting um, and it was International Women's Day, so I made sure we did this whole thing highlighting women in the industry and highlighting. Um, if there still is gender bias and, you know, we had the sales perspective and the customer success perspective. And um, I was looking up some stats on it and um, customer success and account management is actually very heavy in um, female employees. So it's definitely different than sales where, you know, sales, it's still pretty minimal. Now in customer success, um, there's still um, bi not bias, but there's still um, not full equality when it comes to leadership positions. So you'll have a lot of female CSMs but maybe not a lot of female, you know, um, vice presidents of customer success or senior vice presidents. So I wanted to make sure we highlighted that on the call. 
And um, I love your question because someone asked me on the call, hey, why are there, why do you think there's more females in customer success than men? And it, it, it made me take a step back because I didn't want to say anything that sounded biased as well, assuming that women are more empathetic. However, I kind of think we are a little bit. So if I could say that on the podcast, I will. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't disagree. Why do you think there's fewer uh, women leaders in that role? I think there's fewer women leaders because I think women tend to doubt themselves. So I read once that a man will actually go and apply for a job that he is not even, he, he has no business applying for this position and he'll apply and he'll interview and he'll say he needs it. Whereas a woman will not apply unless she really believes she's, she's qualified. And most of the time a woman is overqualified for the position she's doing. So I don't know what it is about women doubting themselves or what they're capable of. And Someone asked me one of the questions on Women's Day was, you know, how can you inspire other women to, you know, move up the ladder or whatever they need? And I really feel like you need like a mentor. You need somebody in your corner that you can just sometimes just bounce an idea off of like, hey, is it crazy that I want to go for this position or do you think that I'm capable of this? And I think women are getting better at raising other women up. Um, however, it still is competitive in nature and, you know, I mean, it's competitive wherever, but I think um, we just have to lift them. Well, I don't know a single man in, in a professional context that doesn't want to do that as well. I agree with you. I mean, most men in, in a professional life, most, particularly in the, the SaaS sector, software sector, it tends to be a very young and it's, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not like banking where there's a very old state image where they still go to work in, in three-piece suits. Yep. Um, it's, it's, it's very different, and, and, and I see it, and, and I've certainly seen it around International Women's Day, um, but certainly the ones I know would, would tend to, would be happy to go out of their way. I agree. So I, think it's, I think it's happening. I think, there's no question about it. I see it, and when I do kind of quick numbers in my head of women I, I know in sales leadership, it's quite a few, 50-50, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. but it's enough that it's no longer an anomaly. Agreed. Now, when I say enough, please don't anybody attack me by saying, you said it's enough. I didn't say that. I said, there's a critical mass there mm -hmm. that, that if you're looking at getting into sales, you'll see lots of women in sales leadership. Yep. And with that said, I know I, I interviewed uh, uh, a woman last week, and one of the comments when we put the blog up was, from a rep I trained years ago in Oracle, and she said that she was thinking back to all her managers, and she'd only had one female manager. Mm -hmm. And I think I would be the same. Now, I've, I've been out of corporate life for 19 years anyway, so that's probably different. But it definitely changes. There's no question about it. Um, I, don't, I don't know for very different reasons whether it will ever be. I don't think any, anything can ever be 50-50. It may even overshoot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It might overshoot. Yep. Right. But I think certainly getting it on the agenda and getting it recognized, I think that's, that's happening. And it tends to happen, you know, software companies, SaaS-based companies tend to be early adopters by nature. Yep. And what you'll find then is that will ripple through other, maybe more conservative industries in time. Yep. Um, I agree. I feel like it also... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I feel like as well, it resonated with a lot of the men on my team. Um, because a lot of the men have daughters and I feel like, like you said, it's a different day and age, right? Where they want their daughters to grow up and 
go to college and work and be successful. Whereas, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it's crazy that it was only that long ago, you know, that wasn't the case. So I felt like I saw when I was on the Zoom with my team, you know, I referenced that we had so many men on the meeting that empower us. And to your point, they lift us up. And, you know, I report into a man as well. And he's promoted me now two or three times. Like he has no problem promoting women, which I really appreciate. And I could tell the people on the call when I said the daughter thing and just women in their lives or their mothers or whatever, you could just tell by their facial expressions and the nodding that it was really resonating with them. Well, you know what? It's, it's the one person on the planet you're guaranteed any man will listen to is mm-hmm. the daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and they're much more self-aware and aware of a changing world. And I know I have, the, you, you talk about, I can't remember, you mentioned it earlier, it was the pre- private, previous interview I had, was uh, about the unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. Bias is such a strong word because it has all these negative connotations and it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean negative, it just means it's a way of thinking that is maybe somewhat constrained or uh, sometimes can be completely uh, off, off the mark. And, and I'll give you an example. And it was my, it was my daughter. Oh man, she's 19 now. Uh. Maybe <laughs> nine at the time, maybe younger. And she threw something to me. Okay. Wait, at you or to you? <laughs> you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What I said to her, you throw like a girl. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mean anything by it. Because mm-hmm. when I grew up, you know, guys, we didn't have internet, so what you'd find us doing on a Saturday or on a weekend is fighting with neighbors and we'd be throwing stones, throwing sticks, and guys just threw differently to girls, or, or, or whether it was playing baseball or any other sport, typically, right? And, uh, and I know that in itself, I'm going to get some meat even just for that statement alone. But, but here's the thing, you might hold off on it for a second, is she went away, she didn't say anything. And I know what it was, we were staying in a hotel somewhere, so my wife and I were in one room and the kids were in the next. And I got this little note slipped under the door and I picked it up. And I, 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 I don't even know that I can recall telling you exactly what was on it because I find, just find it difficult. Mm-hmm. But it was along the lines of, look dad, I know you didn't mean to, but here's how I felt. Wow. Oh my God. You must have, I know, must have crushed you. It did actually, yeah, it did, and uh, but but that's what it, that's what it needs. It's like mm-hmm. I'd never thought about that. It yeah. just just came out of my mouth like a stream of consciousness. But when you looked at the impact of somebody you care, and you go, and so I think everybody has those little pivotal moments mm-hmm. that where something occurs, and and you look at the world differently, and and I grew up with that. I mean, my mother worked in the public sector, it's like a federal job. Okay. And uh, she had to leave that job when she got married. Yep. It was not allowed. Yep. Um, so like, it's come a long, long way. There's no question about it. And yeah. I think, I think now we're just tinkering at the edges. That would be my, my assessment. I agree. I, I love that story about your daughter because I do agree with you that I feel like men, well dads, they're usually that's who they listen to. I mean, I'm so close to my father. I always have been. So, you know, and I go to him for everything. So if I were to say that to him, I know it would hit him hard. And even my dad, he's very old school and he doesn't realize some of the things he says. And I have to sometimes say, dad, like you can say that to me, but you can't say that out loud. Like you can't, you can't tell people that you got to be a little more PC with that. Um, 
And I do think that we have made, you know, strides as women. Um, one thing that I that came up actually on my Monday meeting was I feel like COVID has set people back a little bit just based on what's happening. So I have a couple of friends, um, stay-at-home moms or a couple of working mothers. And I said to them, I was like, how, how are you homeschooling your kids right now and working? Like, how, how do you do that? My kids, like I said, they're three, so they're young. So I don't have to be sitting there, you know, teaching them math yet. But I was like, how do you do this? I would never be able to work. And um, they were like, oh, well, you, have, you would quit your job. Like the woman would quit their job. And it completely like, like lit a fire in me because I said, why, why am I quitting my job? Why is my husband not quitting his job? Why, why do you assume it's me? And um, my husband's a fireman. He's a FDNY fireman. So, you know, I'm, I'm helping support my family by working as well. And it was, again, unconscious, unconscious bias that they weren't trying to offend me or other women or, you know, take down that my role is not important. But just in their minds, it was, of course, the woman is going to stay home and, you know, support their kids and homeschool them. And I was like, no, tell my husband to do that. Here's the thing, Janine, and this is what I'm trying to kind of work, work through. You, you mentioned earlier, and I asked you about why do you think there's not more women leadership in, yeah. in, in that particular role, and you said that, and, you, and you're absolutely right, by the way. And I know from the jobs I've always gone for, there was no way I was qualified. Mm -hmm. I didn't care. I would just try it anyway, and if I didn't get it, I didn't get it. And even mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the, the role I'm in right now, and I bought a franchise 19 years ago, I was not qualified. I was not qualified. <laughs> years. Not, not, a, not a chance. And, and, and I, I know that now I can say it looking back. But it, it didn't matter because if you believe in yourself, you'll know that I'll get the skills. Yeah. I'm gonna, you know, I'll throw myself into the deep end. And you know what? I mean, they're going to sink or swim. And so I think sometimes it's the confidence to throw ourselves into situations that are uncertain. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a factor. But, but bring that forward now to this other situation. And, and I'll use it as kind of, I'm just thinking of my own example here, is that uh, I think there's a, there may be, and again, I might get a little bit of heat for saying this, there may be an automatic assumption on behalf of women as well mm -hmm. to stay at home. Yep. Rather, rather than, hey, Tom, we've got this situation. We mm -hmm. need to work out a schedule between the two of us. We're both going to have to negotiate the hours on this. Yep. I think most men, by the way, if it was put to them, they'd go, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know that it's put. I think there's an automatic assumption. And then men going to go, well, you know, that's what you wanted. Yep. And so I do think, and I know it must, it, it must be tiring, right? And I get it. It must be tiring always have, having to be the one pushing. I get it. Um, and I think when I said earlier tinkering, with progress. I think it's in those areas now. I think yeah. from a big picture point of view, I think we're pretty much there. Yeah. And I know those people will disagree and they'll quote all sorts of stats, but that, that's not, that's missing the point. Um, it's, it's, you know, when, when it comes into things like gender pay and stuff like that, that's there because of these situations. Yep. And, and so it's not the status, the issue. It's, it's, it's what happens in these moments that, impact on that number mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and and as I said I, I know I think yeah I, it's, it's a difficult one I, I don't know how you resolve it because it's not fair either as I'm kind of talking it through I'm not very it's not fair either that 
it's the woman has to kind of put it on the table and negotiate it. That's not fair either. Well, I think I think what people can do, and I mean, you're doing it right now, is it's just awareness of what's actually is occurring and what's going on, because that's how that's how change happens. It's just being aware of the situation. And so I think you saying that is fine. Like you're, you're well aware of the situation, which is a great thing. Um, our company actually, um, we, we release every, we do an all hands meeting every couple weeks. Um, and at least once a month, our CFO actually shares out um, diversity metrics for our company to show how we're tracking in terms of hiring um, people of different races, um, age and um, females. Um, and the female metric is actually female in leadership. So I can't tell you like what a long way that goes that almost every single time they post that PowerPoint slide, we have, we do, we use Zoom and in the chat, it's always like, this is so amazing that you guys are transparent with this, or this is so cool that we're, you know, we're working to be better. So I think it's just the awareness and knowing, you know, we're not perfect. You know, I hire, you know, I wish I, I wish I had a more diverse team. You know, we're working to hire more diverse folks. Um, but it's just the awareness of, a situation and I feel like Paul I always used to operate where I didn't believe there was like a glass ceiling like I said I'm just like a go-getter and I was like it's fine I'll just do it I'm just gonna go get it done but looking back I have totally been in situations where you know I have felt or known that my male counterpart was paid more than me and not only was I doing the same job I felt like I was doing it better than him but you know it's just based on some of the bias and I well, love can what I ask you a question yeah this is important yeah had you asked for a raise? So this is this is a great question. So I had, but not nearly as assertively as a man would have. And I actually have a peer at my current company. Um, he's amazing, and I go to him for guidance, like on some things. He's on. He's actually on the sales team. So good to talk to a sales guy about how to negotiate your salary. And um, he was giving me very specifics on like, do not ask for maybe around a certain amount or a certain percentage or whatever. He's like, tell them exactly what you want and what you need that's going to make you not only stay, but be happy, like, you know, what you deserve and, you know, data behind it, you know, statistics on what people are being paid for your role and having a very direct conversation. And it is something, Paul, that I've had to learn to do over the last couple of years because I, I'm a nice person, but that doesn't mean that I can't be assertive and ask for what I want. And I think that some women, not all women, um, but I'll, I'll categorize myself, I tend to be a little more softer, not as direct. I'm afraid if I'm direct, I come across that I'm too it's, much. It's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's one of the five pillars of personality, agreeableness. Mm -hmm. and women tend to be on average more agreeable yep. than men. And, and, and then that's the outcome of that. Um, as I'm thinking about it, I think maybe we need to do something like a webinar on for women on how to ask, like like you, your mentor did. Yeah. Because I know when I was working, where I would look around and go, you know what, I'm not being paid as well as everybody else around here. Yeah. And then going, for whatever reason, and then going to my bosses, calling them into a room and saying, okay, I want this, I want it by that date, and here's why. Yeah. And I got it. Normally you do, if you're doing your job, and if you have your numbers, you normally get it. I think that people fear if they don't get it, it means that your boss is going to think poorly of you that you asked or you have to leave. And I love when my team asked me for, like I said, we just did our performance reviews. We did end of year raises, promotions. And I had people that I gave pretty amazing raises to and they still were like, I think I deserve more well, than this. Thing, sorry, Gina. No, go ahead. The worst thing that would happen out of that 
is if they come to you and you can't give it to them right now, is you'll at least negotiate a, a, a program whereby, mm -hmm. look, in three months' time, we'll do a review, and if you've done this, 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 and this, yep. you'll get the raise. Yep. And that's a good outcome, too. Of course. But if you don't have the conversation, you're not going to get it. There's, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I think there's a lot of um, efforts that are tinkering at the edges that are designed to, you know, where, where companies have to publish their pay rates mm -hmm. by gender. And I don't know that that's going to solve the problem. It is. I, I think it's going to cause more. Yeah, I think, I think someone actually asked our company, you know, why we don't publish our salaries and pay rates. And it's just always going to be, it's, not, it's never, it's always going to cause more problems than good. But I will say we hired um, my CFO and my HR company, HR department, sorry, they hired an outside consulting firm that actually went and did um, salary bans for not just for every single role within the company based on experience, years, et cetera. And we went in and we made pay adjustments for people that we realized, you know, based on their region and their output. So again, it's like awareness. And I mean, I'm, I'm happy that my company is doing that, but all companies don't do that, That's unfortunately. That's a smart way to do it, by the way. That is a really smart way to do it. Have somebody dispassionate, doesn't know the individuals, is able to look at it objectively mm -hmm. and then be able to tinker with it and say, okay, um, because then you're getting ahead of the problem. Yeah. Because, and, and, I, and as I said, I think while, while that persists, and I, and I, get, I just think the agreeableness is a, more of a female characteristic than it is a male one. And that's not gonna change. I, you know, that's just innate. I, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon, for sure. You know, but I, 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 so therefore, I think there needs to be that type of intervention on a regular mm -hmm. basis. So you can, you can tackle it from both ends. You can tackle it from the, hey, you need to ask for more and you need to be more assertive about it. And yeah. some will respond to that, there's no question, but not everybody will. And even with that, you still have to continue to do that. That has to be a regular intervention with your staff. Yep. Or you can do it the other way, which is a very objective way of doing it as well. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's smart. And that's why I think you just, it, it goes back to what I told you earlier when we were chatting is you just need somebody also in your corner that you can honestly like sometimes just give you a pulse check. You need some, it sounds so crazy, but I was interviewing managers for my team and it's hard to hire an outside manager to now come in and motivate a team and they don't even know the company and the product. And I remember talking to um, one person and I said, you need to like lift them up. Like you need to empower them and be their cheerleader, be their advocate as we go throughout. Cause there's going to be some days where it's hard, you know, we're dealing with maybe like a customer issue or just, you know, preparing for a tough meeting that's going to stress us out. But then they're going to just want someone in their corner to tell them like, you can do this. And I think some women, men do it too, but it's the doubt that I think will resonate. And then once you have that doubt of, Hey, I don't want to ask for 10k more. Maybe I should just ask for five because they'll be happy with five. And it's funny. I have a book over here um, that someone sent me, um, and it's literally called "Women Don't Ask," and it's all about um, salary and about how to approach, you know, asking for what you want. But what's crazy with the whole woman thing is it's what you deserve. It's it's you know normally the women are doing the job and. You know, maybe, Paul, maybe I have to, you know, apply for a position after this that I'm not qualified for, see how it goes yeah. and run with it. I mean, well, maybe. Just on the, based on the title of that book has me thinking mm -hmm. that traditionally, just go back to the dating game. Mm -hmm. Men always had to ask women that. 
Yeah, we... forward if she asked a man out. So therefore, women were were maybe conditioned not to ask. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it comes just from that, but I think if there's a societal expectation of gender roles, that certainly plays out in the dating game. Yeah. Well, my question is, and I'm not qualified anymore because I've been married 29 years. <laughs> is has that changed? Do women now ask men out on dates as much or is it still the, the guy's job to ask the woman out? So I've been out of the dating game for a while. I'm married about eight or nine years now. I should actually know how many years I'm married. I think nine. Um, but I would say I think a lot of my friends that are single, um, they will, they will ask a man out. I think um, with the whole, you know, the dating apps and stuff like that, especially with COVID, I'm sure it's a little easier. Getting out, swiping right. Yeah, I mean that's a little easier, I guess. Asking somebody, that's different. You're right. I mean, Paul, I'm gonna have to invite one of my single coworkers on this next time to see what happens with that. Interesting discussion topic. Yeah, it would. And I and I feel like you just you just hit it on the head too with women like where it was one of the quotes we posted, but it was about you know a woman is considered sometimes aggressive just because she's being assertive if, if and what she wants you know i've been called bossy in the past and i'm like yeah, you know i'm not being what my wife grew up with yeah my father used to say you're stroppy but no he didn't have any sons but still that wouldn't be something you'd ever call a guy yeah stroppy. yeah headstrong cheeky whatever but it wouldn't be stroppy yeah i agree and i mean i think just being aware of it i feel like you know with my team i have um I know I said I have 30 people in my org, but I have four direct managers. And out of those four managers, three of them are women. They're absolutely amazing. Um, in our sales org, we have um, a couple of female leaders as well, um, which I think is great. And um, I feel like diversity helps any company because you get different opinions at the table. You get, you know, who wants the same persona and genre at every table, you know? So I, I feel like companies are being better. Um, yeah. Here's a question, Janine, that I'm, I'm really interested in. Okay. Do you manage men and women differently? Oh, that's a good question. I don't feel like I do, to be honest with you. Um, and I don't know if it's just because a couple of the men on my team that I'm close with, they actually are pretty like empathetic and um, I, don't, I don't know how to explain it, but I don't, I don't believe I do. Whereas I could totally see a man, like a male manager, treating a, a female employee versus a male employee a little differently. I have felt different in the past where, you know, maybe they were even a little nicer to me because they felt bad being more assertive. Um, recently, my boss, who's amazing, um, apologized to me for being tough on me for on a call that we had. There was a couple people on the call and he, he was I didn't think he was that bad by any means. And afterwards, he actually apologized to me just for being a little tough on me. And I, I said right to him, I said, that was nothing. I was like, I can handle that. So I don't know if, you know, that's a, that's a gender bias just straight there. Yeah. Did you call him out on it? Um, yeah. I mean, he, assuming it was a him. He, it, it was a he, and he apologized to my male counterpart as well. So I had a male peer on the call and he, he apologized to us. Um, so it wasn't just, to, just to me, but after I even said to him, I said, you don't think I can handle that? You know, I made it. And of course he knows I could, and he just felt bad. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that sometimes men do treat female employees different than um, men. Start, I, 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 when one of my sons was playing under nine soccer, mm -hmm. and at that age, boys and girls play on the same teams. 
Mm-hmm. And I, we didn't have any girls on our team. Just the, when I said they, they mix, they're on a team of 11, you might have one or two girls max at that age. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we played against other teams who would have had a couple of girls on the team. And I always hated it. Because the guys on my team, no matter what I said or did, they would always pull out of tackles if they were good. They would never go in heavy on, a, on, on the girl. Where yeah. the guy would jostle them out of the way or kick the legs from under them. But they would never do that. And of course, the girl would come along, take the ball off, and go off and score. <laughs> and, and so, but that's a, that's, a, that's a programming conditioning as well. You know, it's like, hey, Paul, go easy on your sister. Yeah, yeah. And she would never take place if it was myself and my brother were fighting. Yeah. And so, and I think it's in, it's the, we, we talk about trying to fix stuff in the workplace. That's not where the problem is. The problem is three, four, five years of age. Yep. In terms of how people are socialized into the world. And, uh, and, and girls who are tough, like my younger sister, she's five years younger than me. She grew up tough, tough. Yeah. Because, um, the, we just had that relationship. I teased her a lot. She would keep reminding me of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's that 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 would be unusual, I think, in 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 siblings, is that the the girls are treated more. Uh, don't you don't fight with them, you don't. Yeah, or, sorry, I know what I wanted to say, was that if if a girl did fight back, and and enjoyed it, she'd be a tomboy. That's what we mm-hmm, call mm-hmm. and. It's not that that was a negative trait, but I'm sure it didn't feel as a girl that it was a nice thing to hear. Yeah. And I'm sure many girls, you know, myself included, if I wanted to, let's say, be more um, athletic when I was younger, you know, I played sports, but maybe I held back a little bit because I didn't want to be a tomboy. I wanted to be, you know, a girl, a girly girl when I was young. because That's how it was stereotyped back then. And I think it's definitely different now. Um, I think we could always be better. So to your point with like your brother and your sisters, so I have twins and they're a boy and a girl. And it's interesting because, you know, I go to the doctor for their checkups and I'm comparing them all the time. And, you know, they tell me they're like, you can't compare them. They are two different people that, you know, develop, you know, on their own time. It doesn't matter. And then they actually said to me, you know, and you have a boy and a girl. It's not like you have two boys or two girls. And I was like, really? I was like, is the development different or, you know, social skills different? And um, it depends on who you ask, but the doctors say that, you know, sometimes a girl um, develops her her verbal skills earlier than the male and vice versa. So even just that, you know, I'm already talking to my kids and I'm like, oh, well, no wonder why Vanessa talks more. She's, you know, the girl. But at the end of the day, like, you, you have to treat everybody the same. And like you said, it's unconscious bias. You don't realize you're doing it. And it's nothing, um, you know, negative and it's nothing like malicious. It's more just, you know, how you said to your daughter, you throw like a girl or how someone says, you know, man up. Like if you want to like, you know, like, like, you know, get it together. It's like, why am I manning up? Like, what does that even mean? But it's just sayings that we, we grew up hearing. So we say it like it's nothing, you know? Yep. Um, Maybe we have a little further to go than I realized. Yeah. I mean, you said mystery guests, so we didn't know where this whole we didn't. thing was going to go with us, too. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I've, I've, I'm just going to keep it, we're just up on time anyway. Um, tell me, Janine, what's, 
What's next for you, do you think, kind of five years, 10 years down the line from now? Yeah, so that's a great question. So what's next for me is, I mean, I would love to see our company eventually go public and, you know, bigger and better there. Um, but I think what I really want is for my next stop in my career to not just be customer success, but kind of like a chief customer officer where operations, enablement and all of that kind of rolls under me because I feel right now I have so many ideas and I love working with all the different teams, but sometimes it's too many cooks. So I'm like, if I could just build out my team, kind of get stuff done. And then, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of my team. I have a lot of people that actually used to work with me at previous jobs that I brought over. So I feel like that's also where I want to be in another five years. I want to still be with the same people, whether it's at this company or another one, um, empowering each other. Um, and something as a leader that I take seriously is, like you said, like growing them and cultivating them so that they can get to where they want to be in their careers. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I would like to believe I'm a sponsor and a mentor for many of the female and men on my team. Um, but to continue doing that and to figure out how I can scale myself to do that for more people, because um, it's just it's just something I get a lot of pride out of is helping others. Um, and maybe that's why I'm in customer success, right? Helping customers. Um, but yeah, so we'll see where I end up, Paul. I'll have to figure it out. I, what you said about, the, and this is a sales leadership podcast, mm -hmm. is that people who followed you from a different company to, that is to me the only marker for leadership. Mm -hmm. Write out all the traits you want in the world, and I'm not denying them, not saying not discounting them, but the ultimate asset test is a leader has to have followers, people who follow them because they admire them, they respect them, they want to go where they're going. Mm -hmm. The fact that that is done says everything. So uh, thank you for being my guest. I really, really enjoyed it. One final question, which I ask all my guests is if you, or when, when, because none of us are getting out of this alive, <laughs> when, when that time comes and you shuffle off this mortal coil and uh, there's a plaque written in your honor, what would you like it to say? Oh my gosh. Um, when there's a plaque written in my honor, I love it to say, Janine was an amazing person, mother, friend, mentor, I would want it to be about how I made them feel. Um, so something about that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want on my plaque for it to say Janine was CCO of whatever company. So I think it really goes more to the person and what they felt. Yeah. As, yeah. As, as an anonymous person once said, people will never remember what you said. They'll always remember how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. And it's and very true. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Janine, great. thank you so much for being my guest today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Paul. I had so much fun. It was great.